Well, good morning. My name is Jeff and uh, one of the shepherds here. And uh, it's one of those things where you start off a passage right off the bat where somebody gets killed. Um, What a great way to start the morning. Let's talk about death. Um, we are talking about Daniel. We're in chapter five and we're continuing this, this amazing story of one particular young man's life. Um, although at this point he's no longer a young man. So we're going to start off with a little bit of a recap so that you can follow what's happened in his life and what's been going on, um, specifically in this part of the story. So Belshazzar, the king that uh, shows up in chapter five, he is actually, most scholars believe, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king that we've been following, who is the king of Babylon, has been the king of Babylon. And then there's some things that happen with the family as it goes um, from, from family member to family member, the, the throne kind of changes hands. But it ends up for Belshazzar in this story, much, much later, Daniel is estimated to be anywhere from 60 to 80. He's older at this point. So before we've been talking about Daniel when he's a young man, at this point, Daniel is an older man. And as an older man, he's almost been forgotten. It's that sense that everything that happened before the stories we've talked about all happened years and years ago. And Belshazzar, as we learn, um, he, he gets this story brought back to him, but it's a story that had happened many years earlier. So that's where we jump in. And just as a recap of this story, without reading all the verses, it's a long chapter, we see that not only is he there in charge of the kingdom, but there's a queen. And even there, it's uh, oftentimes interpreted the queen mother. Like, is this his mom? Is this his grandma? We don't even know exactly what the role is, but it's not likely his queen, meaning his wife, because he's at this party with a thousand lords with all of his wives and his concubines. So it's not that queen, so likely the queen mother. And she has a remembrance of Daniel as well as we've seen in the story. And then Daniel is called in, and as Daniel is called in, Daniel literally recaps what would have been um, Belshazzar's grandpa, the story of that whole thing we covered last week, where because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, God humbles him, and for seven years, he basically loses his mind, and he's out with the animals, eating grass, and, and the dew is on his back, and that whole story happens, and then he finally has that aha moment, and comes comes back and clearly recognizes God as the most high God. And when he does that, his mind comes back with clarity. He's restored to power. And we finish up with that in the last chapter. Well, Daniel comes in and Daniel comes in and it's story time with Daniel. That literally the first thing Daniel does when he's given this audience with, with Belshazzar is he tells that story and says, I need you to remember this story that was given to your, your grandfather. And then uh, later on that night, in fact, probably while the party is going on, uh, the Medes and the Persians literally have dammed up the river that brought water into this fortified city of Babylon. 
and they have snuck into the city and they conquer Babylon, even though it had huge walls, fortified city, they came in right down underneath and uh, rose in above and they took over Babylon that night and Belshazzar was indeed killed. And history verifies that that's exactly how the Medes and the Persians took down Babylon. So all of this is part of history. It lays there. That's the story in a nutshell. And as we jump in, we're going to start talking and breaking down a couple of key components that are in this story. The, the first thing I want you to see is, is what stands out is Belshazzar's fear. This fear, I think, is a hint at something because it doesn't show up in anybody else. And so once again, he's at this party. Everybody's drinking. They're, um, they're doing all kinds of things. And many scholars believe that it was a very immoral party. There was a lot of things going on. I'm not going to give the list of what possibly was going on, but it's not a good night there at the palace. But as this is all going on and everything's starting to happen, this hand comes out, comes out of nowhere and starts to write on the wall. And it says by the lampstand, meaning there's good lighting. And it's not like, well, it, was there something in the shadows over there? It just, the opposite is said in such a way that it wrote on the plaster, meaning that when Daniel comes back, he can read it. This hand writes on the wall and everybody sees it. The, the Lord see it, the concubines see it, the wives see it. Everybody's, they notice it. And I think that most people thought, well, that's a pretty cool party trick. How can we get one of those at our next party? You know, that there's just this hand that appears out. Everybody kind of just takes it for an unusual occurrence. And in fact, it says that the lords were perplexed, but Belshazzar was not perplexed. He was in terror. He, his legs knocked together and it says that as we look at, uh, I think we're in verse six in that range, uh, immediately to five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, of the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the limbs gave way, it's just the idea that the, the, the hips just gave out. He just collapsed in total abject fear. He is terrified of this entire thing. And he calls for his wise men to come and translate for him and they're like, they could not, verse eight, they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. They're almost like, why are you so afraid of these words on the wall? It's as if Belshazzar knew something. It's as if Belshazzar realized that the writing on the wall was more than just a hand writing words on the wall. And we will find this out to be true as we read on with Daniel. When you look at verses 21 and uh, 22, right in that range, um, let's pick it up at 21. He's finishing up the story He about Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was... With the wild donkeys, he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until, for seven years, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God, in, um, not that you do not see, but which they do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You knew this, Belshazzar. Daniel comes in with a, just a scathing word that stops and says, this story of your grandfather, you knew all this. You knew it and yet you still did this. And even as I see Belshazzar's response at the handwriting on the wall, it makes me think that he even knew that God was convicting him, that God was challenging him, that God was calling to him, that God was saying, don't do this. We know this about God because God did this with his grandfather, with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, don't do this. I will work with you to break down your pride because it is destroying you. Don't do it. The most high God reaches out and has relationships with normal men and women and reaches out and talks to us. And he talked to Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe that when that handwriting came on the wall, the Belshazzar needed it translated, but he kind of already knew. The bottom line is he at least knew the story of his grandfather because Daniel says, you knew this. You knew all of this in verse 22. And yet you still are doing what you did. You knew this. Oswald Chambers, who uh, writes that great devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, um, he simply has a quote where he says, never allow a truth of God that is brought home to your soul to pass without acting on it. Instead, record it with ink or blood. Never allow a truth of God that is brought home to your soul to pass without acting on it. Record it with ink or blood. This idea that if God speaks to you, it should matter, that we should pay attention that when God actually engages with man, it's that type of thing. And this idea of recording things, the written on the wall, the handwriting on the wall, that is where the phrase comes from, from this story. We talk about it now, that the end has come, the handwriting's on the wall, that is from Daniel 5. And there's so many other phrases like that in our culture because those are principles and truths that continue to go on. In this particular case, though, there's this, this concept of what's written, written on the wall. I, I love books, and I love old books especially, um, just antique books, those kind of things. I think that there's just something great about the wisdom that's in an old book. Uh, I think they made books better in the old days, how they bound them with leather, that kind of a thing. But the bottom line is uh, one of my favorite authors uh, is Mark Twain. I love his humor. Um, anyway, I'm in a bookstore once, and I find this, this book by Mark Twain, and inside the, the, uh, is the price. And I look at the price, and it's really, really expensive. It's, it's like just shy of a 1000 bucks. And I'm like, I don't like Mark Twain that much. And the owner stops and says, oh, but it's autographed. He literally has autographed this book. And I'm thinking, wow, that's great. Does it say to Jeff? And he says, no. And I'm like, well, then I'm not necessarily interested because it's just his name written there. If it's not written to me, it doesn't matter as much. I have a friend in England who is a world-class photographer. He takes pictures of homeless individuals on the street. And there was a book that was put out 
we got a chance to work together on that book and he gave me a copy of his book and he inscribed in it, not just his signature, but a note to me. The value of that matters more than the note from Mark Twain. When Mark just puts his name there, that's awesome, but it doesn't matter as much as as Lee Jeffries, the photographer who writes a note to Jeff Lilly. That starts to matter to me that there's a note there. I also have a letter from my mom. My mom's passed away and has been gone for almost a couple decades. But I have a letter from her that I had reached out to her and said, Mom, when it comes time, we're about to have a kid. Uh, What's your advice for raising kids? And she took the time to write a letter with her advice on how to raise children. That letter matters to me. And for some of you, as you're struggling to raise your kids, it should matter to you. You should borrow the letter. There's a, there's a point, though, that there's value in certain things. I have a letter from my wife. The very first letter, we met on a one-weekend thing. We were from different parts of the state. She went back home, and then we began to write. And the very first letter she wrote me, I still have. That letter is valuable to me. And now we come to this point in time where God writes on the wall, is that not valuable? Is that message matter? Does it, does it have any value? You know, if I were an archaeologist and we found ancient Babylon, the one thing I'd like to find is that wall. To literally see the handwriting, the cursive style, the Aramaic, how did he write? But the fact that it's God's writing on that wall, you can see it. Here we have the words, but we don't actually get to see how he wrote it. That plaster has that. And there's part of me that wants to believe that it's buried under sand and he kept it intact. And one day archaeologists are going to find this wall intact with many, many turquoise progress. Would that not be cool? That's awesome to me. Now, the problem is the message is not awesome, at least not for Belshazzar, that this concept is, is pretty challenging. So I'm going to go through a couple of verses really quick to let you know that God does this on a regular basis. So if you've got your journals out, you might just simply write these verses down because I'm going to read through them rather quickly. Uh, you, you can try to turn if, if, if you're good at Bible drill. But our first one's going to be Exodus 31, 18. This idea that God writes and spends the time to just simply put down his words. And in, in verse 18 of chapter 31 of Exodus, it says, and he, that's God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This isn't the first time the hand of God has written. And those stones, I would also like to find, they are known to be in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark, you just got to watch a movie about Indiana Jones to find out where that's at. When you get to Psalms 48, in Psalms 40, verse 8, um, we'll start with seven. Then I said, behold, I have come in, uh, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. That God has written his law on stone and in our heart. And then we're going to jump to Jeremiah 31, 33. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is a writer and he writes things on stone and here we have it on paper. We have it in our hearts. And then there's that story of Jesus when they bring out the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 6. And in John 8, 6, it says this. This they said to test him um, about whether this woman should be stoned or not. And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him, against Jesus. And Jesus instead bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And now it makes me wonder more what he wrote. That here's the God of the universe writing, writing on stone, writing in our hearts, writing in sand. And we have this story in Daniel that he literally um, writes on this wall as well. Last one, and there are more, by the way, but in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, it says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Paul talking about other believers. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That God literally is one who he writes things. He writes his law on stones. He writes on tablets. He writes in the sand. He writes on walls. He has written in our hearts. And we know this. This word that Daniel gives to Belshazzar should start to trouble you slightly. That if you think about this, and this is my challenge, Darren stops and says, Jeff, would you teach on Daniel 5? I start reading through it and I come to that part and that verse that stops and says, and you knew all this. You knew things. God has already revealed things to you. I stopped and said, oh, there are things that God has spoken to me that I already know. And I believe the same is true with you. That God speaks to each and every one of us, that he challenges us, that his spirit writes on his, on our hearts, what his will is, what his desire is. And in that mix, we have this whole thing of God writing on all of those. And then it leads it to why didn't Belshazzar respond? Why didn't he repent? Why didn't he turn? Why didn't he argue with Daniel and say, Daniel, please give me a second chance. Did he cry out for God? He does not. And there's this sense that when you don't respond to some pretty strong stimulus, the idea of God's hand writing on the wall enough that it terrifies you. There's one thing when you have the inability to act that can be known as just simply paralysis. That if your body's incapable of moving, incapable of responding the way you would want, we would just simply call that paralysis. You might be in a wheelchair. You might be lying flat on your bed and you want to move your arm. You want to move your leg, but you cannot. That's paralysis. But when you get to the point where it's not the inability to act or respond, but it's actually a choice that you make. And you choose to have the law written on you and you know what's right and you know what God's calling you to do. And yet you don't do it. You refuse to act. It's not an inability to act. It's a refusal to act. That's defiance and that's rebellion. And that is stiff arming God himself. And that's the challenge of this chapter. 
is right there in the middle is a point where the most high God interacts with man. And in the process, he says, you know this, and I will tell you that you know this. You have things written in you. The law of God is written in you. God stirs you and writes on you and says, this is what I desire of you. And sometimes it's not paralysis, it's refusal. It's defiance. It's turning away to the other gods, just like like he did, Belshazzar. It was the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of wood, of stone. What is that? Well, some of those ingredients are what make up our phones and our laptops and our TVs and our homes and our cars and our things and our life. And we serve these other gods who do not see, who do not hear, who do not know. They can't even respond. But there is a God who does know. And he has written on our hearts. He has convicted us of sin. And this suddenly becomes challenging because what happens in this moment, Daniel then answers and says the the, the interpretation is, mene, mene, teko, perez, this idea that numbered, your days are numbered, and you have been weighed and found wanting, and tonight it'll be taken into account. So one of my jobs uh, while going to Bible college was to, uh, we lived above a funeral home and in order to get free rent and free utilities, we would pick up, we, I would pick up bodies every other night and every other weekend, people who had passed away. Now that can be gruesome for some. It, it got free rent and utilities so that I could get through college. It was, a, it was actually a pretty good deal, but it's a weird deal. And my very first call, when they finally sent me out alone and they trained me on how to do it, but now it was my call. I get this call and it was early in the morning and they said, hey, would you go to this, this house? They gave me the address. I go to the house. Out in front is a, is a coroner's uh, car and he'd already been and checked the individual and he says, you're free uh, to go in and meet with the family and you can remove the body. And I went inside and I met with the family for a little bit and they told me a story and then they sent me down the hall and to the last bedroom on the the left and I went down the last bedroom on the left and I went in and I still remember this bedroom to this day. This this guy is just laying in bed as if he's sleeping and there next to the bed is is a little chair that has some hooks on it and he has laid his, hooked his pants to it and his shirt and everything that as he got ready for bed, he had taken his clothes off, he had hung them on the chair and then he had climbed into bed. Everything, his watch was there, his wallet was there, everything was right there. And he'd just gone to bed and he had died in his sleep. And his wife says to me, this is his first day of retirement. And today he was looking forward to going to play golf. And I sat there, stood there. And the irony of my first day of picking up um, this guy's body is his first day of retirement or the last day of his life, depending on how you look at it. This is the message that Belshazzar gets is numbered. Your days are numbered and tonight they end. Belshazzar didn't pick those days. The God who is able to write messages to us pick those days. He numbers our days. And when we think we have plans that someday I'm going to retire, someday I'm going to do this, someday I might respond to God and obey him. God says, your days are numbered by me. Not by you. 
And that challenge, as it lays out, it shows up even stronger. Jesus himself comes in with this, this whole response in Luke 12. And I think many of you know that story, but it's the story where... Um, uh, the parable of the rich fool and Jesus says this guy comes in and he's storing up all his grain. Uh, this is Luke twelve eighteen, And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will those be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus tells the story almost identical to the Belshazzar story and says, what are you planning? What are you working on in your life? What is it that's so consuming you that you refuse what God's calling you to do? What God's reaching out into your life to get your attention from? What is that? And even in verse, uh, verse, it looks like 23 of Daniel, this, uh, as Daniel's talking, he stops and he says, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, the God who's in, who's in whose hand is your breath, he holds your breath in his hand. Now, if this feels heavy, if this feels like, gosh, this is just a downer of a message, I'm reading you scriptures of what God, of what Jesus says. And he says, I care about you and you need to put things back into perspective. This idea of refusing the most high God for the things that matter, the wood and stone. These are the things that drive you, the things that, of your life that you think those, those days you think you've numbered your plans for retirement, your plans for vacation, your plans for anything. And meanwhile, the most high God speaks to us. If there's a quote you write down today, it's just this. This is the main crux of the, of the message. If the most high God chooses to reach out to you and writes on your soul. If the most high God chooses to reach out to you and write on your soul. Seems like the least you could do would be to make an effort to reach out and responds and to act upon it of what he's written in your heart. Does that not make sense? If the most high God chooses to come and actually convict you of areas of sin, can convict you to reach out in areas of obedience and righteousness, and he's reaching out to you, it seems like the least we could do would be to respond to him, not to put him off. Not to go, and, and I face this. Let's put it in perspective. Some mornings I get up to do devotions. And, as I, and I don't even do that all morning. Some mornings I choose to sleep. But some mornings I get up to do devotions and I pull my Bible out. And then I think about what happened with the game last night. And I pull out my phone and I start, oh, what about the news? And I start to, oh, there's an email. And I find myself 45 minutes later, it's time to go to work or get in the shower. I have no time for God because the gods of metal, stone, glass, wood. I don't think I'm the only one. I don't think I'm the only one that turns on the TV and watches something that even as I'm watching it, God convicts me that I shouldn't be watching this, that the, the immoral, immoral behavior that's being played out is nearly pornography on TV, on a movie. And I sit there and watch it feeling uncomfortable when God's saying, don't do this. 
what we watch on the internet, what we read, what comes out of our mouth, what we say about others, what's going on in our thought life. I don't want to roll out a list of sins. I don't want it to be written in my hand. But I believe that the most high God does this and convicts us of sin and calls us out on things so that if the handwriting were on the wall, that would not be the first time we would have heard from God. I believe this. I believe that God reaches out to every one of us because scripture says he does. He writes on the, the, the tablet of our heart. God does this. That's a beautiful thing. If the most high God chooses to reach out to you, takes the time to, to write on your soul, at the least we could do would make an effort to reach out and respond to it. This whole series is entitled Citizens of Distinction. And if you haven't noticed it yet, the emblem, uh, the slide pops up in the beginning. It'll probably pop up at the end. But it's got all these stick figures that are just kind of walking along. It's normal people. But then right in the middle is one person who's reached out and has grabbed a hold of a heart. And that heart means love and it means grace and it means forgiveness. But it means citizens of distinction that, that, that we should stand out above everybody else. And not that we would just be good citizens, that we would live our life better, that we would be more holy, that we would be good people. But rather instead, that written on our hearts would be the handwriting of God himself and we would respond to it. The reason why Daniel is a citizen of distinction is because God says to him, don't eat the king's food, eat this other diet. And Daniel says, I could get killed for this. I'm a, I've just been captured. I'm a prisoner of war. I can't speak against the jailer and say that. And God says, you are a different person. Do what I've asked you to do. And he does it. And then they're noted for what they did. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do the same thing. They go, our God is capable of doing this. We know this. He's written it on our hearts. But even if he does not, we will not bow. We could go through story after story of the citizens of distinction and who they are, not because they're good people. There are lots of good people. They're citizens of distinction because they respond to the known will of God. And you know this. You know, because God has written it on your heart. God calls out to you to lay aside those sins, to, to step into a, a obedience and, and do those things of righteousness. There are people you need to forgive. There are people you need to reach out to and ask for forgiveness. There are people that need a phone call from you. There are people that need a visit from you. Put on a mask, <laughs> go see them. Do those things that God's saying, hey, you know that person I've been calling you to, to reach out to, reach out to them. God calls us to do certain things. Talk to that person at work. Reach out and just love on that grandkid. Do those things that God is calling you to because that transform, transforms you from being a normal person into being a citizen of this distinction. A person that stands out above all others because most others are not doing any more than this. All right, I think you get the point. If the most high God chooses to reach out to you and takes the time to literally write on your soul you should at least make an effort to reach out and respond back to him. Uh, that quote, that idea, if there's even, if you ever sense even a hint of God nearby, move towards him. Uh, that is important here. 
finally, this idea of the citizens of distinction. If you look at the queen, the queen sees it in Daniel. We're in Daniel 5, and then uh, her response to Belshazzar. Um, there is a man, verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And she still knows his name, not as Belteshazzar that was given to, to him, but as Daniel. She knows his name is Daniel. He has stood out as who he is because of this. What she knows about him, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Oh, that that would be said of us. That as we move in our circles of friends, as we move in the circles of our families, as we move in our communities and our work and our play and everything that we do in life, that somebody would see us and goes, there's a person in whom is the spirit of the most high God. The way that comes out is because you obey the spirit of the most high God. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to obedience. This is a call for us to literally stop and say, all right, here's a fun story about Daniel interpreting some Aramaic words. Wow, that's great. What's the spiritual application here? Do you really want to know? You already know. You already know this is Daniel's words to Belshazzar. You already know this. He knows this because he knows the spirit of God, that God speaks to Daniel and God has faith or Daniel has faith that God has spoken to Belshazzar. And he says, you already know this. Oh, what do we do with what we already know? Citizens of distinction, they respond to it and then they stand out. The irony of this whole story is that what they're drinking out of are the vessels from the tabernacle of God that were stolen from Israel. When Nebuchadnezzar went, he looted the kingdom. He took these vessels and those vessels themselves are the turning point. The really cool thing about this story is the very thing they're drinking out of is God's answer out of the problem. How many of you have sin in your life? And those of you at home, go ahead and raise your hand as well. And if you're not raising your hand, you're lying and therefore you have sin in your life. You can't get out of this. We have sin and as we're even sinning, in this case, literally Belshazzar is drinking out of a golden bowl and as he does, that bowl is part of the vessels that are used in the tabernacle to cleanse you from sin. If you recognize what's happening, God is going, I am a God of grace. I am a God of mercy. I am a God that I know you're going to sin and I provide a way of escape. That's who I am. And you're taking that very way of escape and you're stiff arming it. You're mocking it. You're drinking wine out of it, getting drunk in your orgies in this moment. You're missing the point. You do have sin in your life. Respond about it, but recognize that at the same time, this God is a God that from the very beginning provided a way out. He provided grace he provided mercy. He provided forgiveness. My youngest son, um, one, one day we were camping, and I apologize if you've heard this story before, but it just fits this really well. We're camping. I get up early in the morning to be by the fire. I start the fire up, and I'm sitting there, and I'm enjoying just being all alone, all quiet. Those of you who are parents know what that means, to just have a quiet moment. I'm out there with a quiet moment. My youngest son, he's about four at this time. He comes out, and he wants to be with me. And so I tell him, I go, all right, you can come out, but only under one condition. You remain totally quiet. 
I don't want you talking. I don't want you asking questions. What's this? Why that? Can I do this? Can I do that? You can sit here by the fire and be quiet, or you can go back in the tent and go back to bed because it's really early. He says, all right, I'll be quiet. And he sits on one of those little camping stools, the little canvas ones that fold up. They have no backs, so they just snap out in a little canvas seat. And he sits on it, and he's sitting there warming himself by the fire, but it gets too hot. So he takes the seat and he turns around like this to sit backwards so he can warm his back. And as he sits back on it, though, the legs go into a different place and he just simply falls backwards right into the fire. And this whole thing happens to me in slow motion because I watch him turn. And as I watch him turn, I realize, oh, the legs not. And then the chair falls and then he goes in the fire and I'm like, I told him. He should have just sat there. I tried to warn him. I'm going to just, that's the consequence of his actions. That's it. And I just let him burn. I would be in jail if that's what happened. Instead, with everything that was in me, I jumped to my feet. I reached into the fire and I grabbed a hold of the front of his shirt and I yanked him out of the flames, the hot embers, everything else. And this wasn't like, oh, he might have got a little singed. In fact, I was running the story by Eugenie um, last night and she goes, oh, it wasn't like his hair was singed. It was a melted mat on the back of his head. We had to shave his whole head just so that he didn't look like a Brillo pad. He had light burns on there, not really any blisters. I got him out before it caused any real damage. He might have psychological damage that his dad let him fall in the fire. But the bottom line is this. What kind of dad would I be if I let him fall into that fire and face the consequence of his choices? That's not a good dad. When we read this story first off that Belshazzar simply has writing on the wall and you're you're dead tonight, that's not a good God. Unless that God has been writing on our hearts all along, all the time, and what scripture says he does, he does. He is writing on our hearts a story that that sin destroys us, that that sin hurts us, that that will be harsh on us. And he says, there's a better way. Be citizens of distinction, obey God and step out into life. The vessels are meant for forgiveness. It tells an entirely different story that God's grace shows up in the middle of this story. And yet for Belshazzar, he gives a stiff arm to the very answer that God is handing him. Meanwhile, John 3.16, a verse that is the most known verse all over the world. It's written on the hearts of all men. It is the golden vessels. It is that message that God stops and says, have I not also told you this? In fact, if you know it, say it with me, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Is it not written on your heart? Has not God already made his way into your life and said, know this about me, that I love you so much I would sacrifice my son for you. I know you have sin. I'm calling you out on that sin, but I also provide the covering for that, the forgiveness for that, the mercy for that, the grace for that. That God has written on your life. And you know, as much as I want to find that wall in the city of Babylon, written in your soul, 
It's the signature of God himself and a story of love. You are an autographed copy. You are an autographed copy. God has written that in your heart. He has signed your soul. We are called to be citizens of distinction, to go out into the world with that message. At the same time, we have people around us who desperately need to hear this message. We are citizens of distinction. We should stand out because of who our God is and what he has written upon our hearts. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so grateful that you found me before I ever knew you even existed, that you were already writing in my heart, you were writing in my soul, that you were already doing a work for me before I even knew you were alive. Lord, this story that Daniel engages with Belshazzar and gives words, it's just a a little line that he knew all this. Lord, you begin to reveal to us things that we are doing wrong, things that we are avoiding from you. Lord, would you give each of us the strength to confront the sin that we've allowed into our life, the things that we continue to do even when your voice speaks against it. Lord, may you find us obedient. Give us that strength and the courage to confront our ways. And Lord, not just sins of commission, but sins of omission, the things you call us to do or that are acts of righteousness, that you would give us the courage and the strength to step out and to reach out and to be light to a community that so desperately needs to know that you have written on their hearts too. That that feeling they have inside, that that yearning they have for something far more in their life is literally your voice saying, I love you. I care about you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace and mercy and that you don't hold us against those convictions unworthily and without a way of escape. But instead, Lord, you have provided your son as an answer for our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for making us autograph copies. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.